everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with our hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. Today, we're going to be talking about a motion about art. Yes, so this was a motion released back in 2013, so it's kind of old. It was in a Canadian tournament called the Commonwealth Open, and the motion reads, This house would prefer to experience art knowing nothing of the artist. So there are two reasons why we wanted to discuss this motion in particular to introduce everyone to art motions. The first would be that it's still really relevant today. So even if it was a motion released in 2013, you still see a lot of issues that use this motion. So I think the most recent one would be the Van Gogh issue on Twitter where people would claim that you need to know about Van Gogh to be able to appreciate the exhibit or even the scandals about Woody Allen and all the sexual harassers who have been found in the industry during the Me Too movement. So I guess that this is still relevant to talk about because it's pretty timeless and I'm, I'm sure there will be issues in the future regarding this motion. I think it's interesting that we talked about Van Gogh Alive because we literally just came from Van Gogh Alive last night. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. But I really liked how there was a robust debate online about how do you really respect the artist? Is this sort of a bastardization of Van Gogh's original um, artistic intent and whether or not we should even care about this? Is it really art that belongs to him and therefore all of our interpretation should be based on what he would want? Or can we decide for ourselves what we want the art to be? Can we transform it in any particular way? And I think it's also interesting to notice, and this is the second reason why we chose this motion, it's that there's a lot of things that we can introduce in this motion that is common to a lot of basic art motions. There's a lot of basic art concepts and arguments here for both sides. So the first concept that we want to take a look at is the concept of meaning. Because it seems like while we cannot really find a good definition of art, like it's it's always debatable what art is even supposed to be, the most common definition that we find in art is its functional aspect which is it creates meaning and an experience in the lives of people who view the art. So in the field of cultural studies, there are three subfields where we can find meaning in art. So the first one would be the textual basis of appreciating art. So this focuses on the question of what, and it looks at the art in a vacuum. So you usually look at the content, maybe look at the structure and form that the art takes. So I took a poetry class in UP when I was like in second year. And we focused a lot on the forms, the typography even, the line spacings, and it also gives a lot of meaning to the art. And we did this in isolation of the artist. We also did this in isolation of our appreciation of it. So it was really a technical study of the art itself. My favorite example of this is um, the time where I studied a lot about hip-hop and how it relates to politics. So hip-hop, even though it is, for example, you think about rap all the time, but the real meaning of hip-hop isn't just the lyrics that you get um, when you listen to a hip-hop record. It's also the sampling that goes into it. It's also the notion that since most of the sounds that you hear are electronically created, it harkens back to the history of hip-hop as something that's a response to rapid urbanization and the rapid rise of technolo- technology when it comes to the creation of art, etc., the second one is um, the production basis. So while the textual basis is what the art is, the production basis talks about who, when, where, and how the art is created. So we're talking about the artist, the context behind it. We're talking about the production and the recording labels, the location, etc. So this is where 
um, the debate looks at how well we should respect the artist, the artist's intent, etc. The last is the audience's basis, which is for whom is the artist supposed to be for. So if you take a look at like most of our scholarly readings about art, it doesn't really make a distinction about who the art is supposed to be for. Yes, there are some times that art is meant for a particular demographic, but you can't really control who gets to consume that art. So if the art is consumed by someone outside of that demographic, there will be a difference in how that audience will perceive it. And this comes from the notion that all of our ideologies come from our own personal backgrounds. And if those backgrounds change, then those ideologies change as well. But since we're talking about contexts here as well, the audience's perspective might change because of his or her exposure, number one, to her own environment in which he or she grew up in, but also through the exposure of the art, you get to see a window into the life of the artist as well. So we have textual basis, production basis, and audience basis. And ideally, in the art world, all three should simultaneously coexist because it makes the art overall more holistic and meaningful. But sometimes particular aspects negatively affect the others. So sometimes audience basis affects the intention of the artist and changes it beyond what the artist intended. Sometimes the text and how people perceive it is different from, for example, what the art itself is trying to convey, etc. So this motion is trying to address that and ask one of the most important questions, which is, is one way of viewing art ideal to the others? Yeah, so here we're trying to look at the way that we create meaning from art and sort of look at is any one of these more important for the purposes of like the true meaning of art? So is it okay for us to disregard the artist in order for the audience's perspective to be the primary function of art um, and these kinds of things? So as a disclaimer, Nina and I prepped this in advance um, to make the discussion clearer because the first time we recorded it, we were so repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided let's Let's just prep this in advance before we record. Yeah, so we're going to tackle both sides of this motion. Um, and hopefully, you learn things along the way. <laughs> this is not how we usually prep. That's the disclaimer. Like This is going to be so much cleaner than how we usually do things. Because if you really listen to us prepping, it would be just 15 minutes of silence with occasional laughing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We, we're going to end up going like, oh. Hello, but that was we're just gonna end up gossiping about some things, some artists or some stuff. Yeah. Hmm. did you know I watched this anime? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you still do that in the recordings, anyway. So, and I will. Later. So what's new? What's new? Okay, government size. So let's start with that. So I think the first argument of government, or the first things you have to discuss in most preppings, actually, is principle backing. Like, what is the principle that will hold? your arguments together. And in this case, Kyle and I want to introduce two things for government. The first would be the idea of death of the author. And Kyle loves ranting about this. And it's one of his favorite concepts. He teaches it to literally anyone who will bother listening. So now he owns a podcast. So go ahead. All right. So the death of the author is a concept that's made by Roland Barthes. And according to Barthes, the author has historically been an oppressive entity that imposes a particular meaning onto art and by extension, the imposition is placed upon the viewing of the audience. So the main thrust here is that art does not belong to the author. When the artist or the author creates a piece of art and puts it out into the world, 
he or she loses ownership over the art. So this is the reason for this is because art, insofar as it, it is experiential, in the sense that it is not it's not a good that you buy so that you can eat it or whatever. Um, it is something that you pay money for in order to get a particular experience to widen like the, the quality of your life by looking at another person's shoes or by putting yourself into a particular reality. So that reality is something that should be owned only by the person who is perceiving the art and no longer by the person who made the art. So for example, in a motion about J.K. Rowling's world building, there would be some who would argue that J.K. Rowling no longer has any right to impose her own version of what Hogwarts or the Wizarding World would actually be like outside of the books. Because the moment she published those books and people read those books, the Wizarding World no longer belongs to J.K. Rowling. It belongs to us, the readers. So that's the reason why the death of the author is very important. Because in the art world, we take a look at how people create meaning and these worlds for themselves. And this leads to the second idea about... How, how art should evolve on its own. So besides the author dying as a, a natural consequence of releasing art, we could also principally say that art was never meant to be stagnant. And the existence of an author is not just oppressive, but actively leads to the stifling of new interpretations and new discourse in art. So we would argue that art must evolve on its own. It must evolve based on how people want it to evolve. And therefore, in principle we should allow the artists not to be involved anymore in how we appreciate and view artworks. So that's the two principal reasons why we think government side would be strong. I also thought about something just now. I remembered that I was thinking about art in relation to economics, and I thought, hey, maybe art is just one of those other transactions wherein the author creates something and the audience interprets it using their own experiences. So I was thinking from an economic perspective, once someone sells you something, the seller no longer has any right over what happens to that good or how you use that good, which is precisely the reason why, for example, although this is debatable, if someone sells you a gun, the seller no longer has the ability or no longer has the responsibility or the liability when you use that gun to hurt someone else. I was thinking of the exact same example. Okay, so that's like the principles behind it. So apparently there are three principles, we're sorry. I, I, I guess, you know, we can't control when we suddenly think of good ideas as we're recording. Okay, so now moving on to the pragmatic arguments. The first one would be that, pragmatically speaking, it's important that we allow room for personal interpretations in art. Because we would argue in government that the primary purpose of art is for the audience to use their own toolbox to be able to derive meaning for themselves, as Kyle mentioned. But the reason this is important is because art was created for the self-growth of people and the overall growth of society. Therefore, the priority should be the audience and no longer the art itself and no longer the artist. But how does this translate pragmatically? When we talk about pragmatics in this argument, we're thinking about how the ability to create new meaning that will potentially change a person's life gets restricted by um, the fixation on the authorial intent or the fixation on the life of the author. Because if a person only looks at the art in relation to the author, knowing about the artist, then like there is no other way for anyone to get another kind of interpretation from it. Yeah, 
Yeah. Okay, so that's the first pragmatic. The second pragmatic argument we thought of would be how the artist will always inevitably harm how the art is interpreted. And for this, Kyle actually introduced me to a sort of grid to showcase how all four different scenarios would lead to harm. So we're going to talk about what if it's bad art with a morally questionable and bad artist, if it's bad art with a good artist, if it's good art with a bad artist, and if it's good art with a good artist. So it's kind of four layers here, so just bear with us a little bit. So if it is bad art as created by a bad artist, there will be no discourse at all. Because if you find something potentially redeeming in the art, other people might just say that it you can't find any redeeming quality to it, specifically because the artist was bad. So there's no way for discourse to happen. You can't find any meaningful discourse about, for instance, what crime is supposed to be considered as if a person is uh, a victim and this is what led him or her to crime if the artist was also, for example, a criminal. Because if you say that maybe we can humanize criminals, people will just tell you you're trying to be complicit in the criminality of the artist. In fact, you're rewarding the criminality of the artist. If it is bad art, but created by a good artist, on the other hand, it changes your perception because even though you might not necessarily think it's good art, because the artist is good, you can no longer dissent. You like There is some sort of overhyping that is created. So if you dissent and you say, I don't really like Harry Potter, which sometimes I do, like my friends who are all Potterheads, like literally get mad at me. It's like, how dare you, Kyle? You are cancelled. I am cancelled. So I think even in that instance, even if um, a person ends up believing that the art is good, it might not necessarily be an authentic um, opinion at the end of the day. And third, if what if it's good art but was made by a bad artist? I think that there's no room for personal meaning here. It'll be dogmatic as well because even if the art is good, like in the case of Annie Hall and Woody Allen, which I think is a really, really great film and is by no means underrated, right now, if you say, I really like Annie Hall, there's no room for you to improve on that and say, I have more, I have more in my life right now because I watched that movie. Because if you admit that, other people will cancel you as well. So this argument is about how other people will react also. But the last one is, what if it's good art made by a good artist? It is similarly dogmatic because, well, I think we have to take a look at how the author inevitably will become the sole authority over what the meaning should be. Because I I imagine opposition will say that like there are many different ways that you can experience art and just because you look at the artist or you know what the artist is or like where the artist came from, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only authority that you're going to be basing your meaning making on. But on the other hand, I think government has to argue that because the artist is so good and is held in such high regard, then everything that the author says about the work that he or she created will be considered as gospel truth. So again, there's no room to dissent here. Alright, so that's the second argument. The third argument and the last one we're going to be introducing, because I'm pretty sure you can think of extensions and probably have more to say about this, would be that I would say that it makes art overall fairer. And I want to talk about like two angles for this argument. The first would be it would be fairer for aspiring artists. Because of the fixation on artists and who create the art, chances are they're usually the ones that get the spotlight. 
It's usually their works that end up being followed. It's harder to break into the industry when there's so many people who have already been established, right? So if you create new art, I would say that it's inherently unfair because the competition is like like stacked against them. But now that we no longer fo- focus on the artist and purely the art itself, I'd say that good underrated artists would have a fairer shot of getting the spotlight um, or at least getting their artworks out there. Because I guess in government world, we have to admit no artist will get the spotlight. And that's fine because therefore we now put the premium and only look at the art and appreciate it for what it is and not the hype or the clout that's associated with the artist. So that's for the artist angle. But second, I would say it also makes art fairer in terms of like the economic sense, uh, how we appreciate the artwork. I would say that besides not artists not being able to get in, like good artworks, even if the community admits that they're good, they don't get the fair compensation that they deserve because a lot of the money or the valuation of art also comes from what the name is that's attached to it. So I'd say overall artworks become at least more or less average in price or more reflective of the quality of the artwork and not of the person. So that's like the two ways I think the art world would overall be fairer. And why is this important? I would say because as much as meaning is one angle, we also have to identify art as an economic tool as we introduced earlier. And therefore, what we'd want is to make a competitive and fairer atmosphere for the entire art community and aspiring artists. So that's government side. Do you have anything else to add? No. Nah. Okay. So now we're going to move on to opposition, which is basically a reverse of everything government says, but we're going to try to like forget what we said at government and just build up as if we prepped it in isolation. Yeah. So again, we're going to start with the principled backing. There are two arguments under the principled heading that we'd like to talk about. The first is something I really like, um, which is the the audience has a responsibility whenever they consume art. And the second is something that Nina really likes, which is that the medium is also a message in and of itself. So under the first one, the one that I really like, that audience responsibility is inevitably a part of art. Here I was thinking first about performance art and how the audience in these kinds of instances is necessarily part of the art. Not necessarily, but necessarily part of the art. So for example, when we're talking about people like Marina Abramovich, where she had a a performance art piece wherein she stood naked in a very crowded area with a bunch of tools at her feet, she was inviting members of the audience to do whatever they wanted with those tools to her. And the conclusion to that, using audience participation, was that if people have the chance, they will hurt you. So from that sort of intuition pump or parallelism, I created this general notion that because art is supposed to be an experience that is communicated from the author to the audience, the audience, in choosing to experience that piece of art, is necessarily a part of that art as well. So the artist, when he or she creates the experience, always has the audience in mind. So the audience, when they consume the art, ends up being a part of the authorial intent as well. So therefore, the artist needs to be part of that transaction because of how it impacts the audience. So we would argue they both go hand in hand. And the principle of opposition is you shouldn't take it in isolation. Which leads to the second principle, which is the medium is also a message. So I I particularly like this one because it views art in a holistic way. So we would argue here in opposition 
that you cannot remove the artist's intentions because you are taking away a fundamental part or an important part of that artwork. To understand the mindset of the artist, to understand the history of the artist, to understand why they made that artwork in in itself also adds to the experience, I would argue. It's also because we have a responsibility as consumers to view things as holistically as possible. If our obligation in society is to have all information and to be as informed as we possibly can. And I would argue that it should also be the same in terms of how we consume art. So it would be very ignorant for us to actively dismiss half or a big percentage of what the art is. One-third. <laughs> One-third, basically, yeah. based on the cultural studies. And actually, I was also thinking that if we're going to consider art's function as like create meaning and make people experience certain things, then removing a source of that meaning would be antithetical to the essence of art as well. And it'll be a disservice to the audience when you remove that particular source of meaning from their options. Which leads us to the pragmatic arguments. There are three that we'd like to talk about in this episode. The first is that the artist, or knowing about the artist, can also improve the experience that audience members will have. Second, that we shouldn't empower bad artists or bad people in general. And why um, knowing about the artist will allow us to hold them into account. And third, that it limits the production of art, in which we're going to talk about some intellectual property um, concepts here and how, like economically speaking, it creates some, it creates more art. Yeah. So the first one is how artists also improve experience. And here I want to be a little bit more personal, probably, in how I'd run this. This is me because, like, because we went to the Van Gogh exhibit yesterday. Well. At the time of recording, we went yesterday. But the time was released probably like a few days ago. But basically, I-, I think that the meaning I derived from that exhibit was very, very different and a lot more personal and a lot more, I'd say, wholesome <laughs> because of my relationship with the artist. So I- I'm I'm bipolar and Van Gogh is as well. So knowing that allowed me to appreciate the art even more because I could put myself in the artist's shoes. I could understand why certain art were made, I can understand why why that person wanted to create the artwork in the first place. So I, I'd say that it improves the experience for particular people if they can relate to the artist, if they understand the artist's intentions, and it would add overall to the experience. Yes, and even if you're not, for example, even if you're not bipolar, if you don't personally relate to the artist, just knowing what the artist must have gone through already informs how you see a particular piece. So even if I am not, for example, bipolar, I can look at the Starry Night and still feel moved by it, specifically because I, I feel like this is how Van Gogh must have felt this, the sky looked like or how the heavens actually were to him as a person. So even though I might not personally see it in this particular way, because I knew about the artist, I sort of felt like this is an experience that I wouldn't have. This is an experience that he was having that he is communicating to me through the art. Yeah. I'd say a third one, and I just thought of this now, is it improves the experience of art because of how it helps it evolve. So the exhibit in particular takes Van Gogh's artworks and makes them into audiovisual presentations. And I'd say one of the things that really inspired how they presented it was understanding what Van Gogh was going through. So 
because of the mood swings that he went through, because of the ups and downs of his bipolarism, a lot of the artworks moved in particular ways to demonstrate the ups and downs of his life. So it also allows artwork to evolve because when you take into consideration the artist's intent, it also informs you of new ways to present that artwork and new ways to let people know the intentions and let people experience it for themselves. That's like the third angle. <laughs> the second pragmatic argument is about accountability and that we shouldn't empower bad people. So there are two ways that we want to take a look at it. The first one is patronage and equating it to being complicit or supporting a particular unethical behavior. So the example that I was thinking of, again, since I, I really like anime, mm. was Samurai <laughs> X. Because Samurai X was a huge part of my childhood growing up. I bought a bunch of manga from it. But recently, I found out that the author actually had a lot of child pornography. So it made me personally feel bad knowing that a lot of my money, a lot of my money ended up contributing to his criminality. Oh no. Yeah, so... You helped him purchase some porn, Kyle. Yeah, so (laughs) that is not, that is not the hentai that I want to be remembered for. Yeah, so... Since we were talking about earlier the principle of the audience being responsible when they consume a piece of art, patronage by extension also leads to complicity, also leads to support. And this means that audience members have a responsibility to know about the artist before they consume the art. Second, it cre- it gives more power to those bad people as well outside of the realm of art. Yeah, outside of the realm of art, outside economics. If you do not, like, even if you don't pay money for it, just the fact that you are consuming the art, not knowing about all the bad things that the artist did or the history of the artist, it gives more power to the bad people because it allows those people to push those negative behaviors aside or sweep them under the rug and gives more credence to the notion that even though I am a bad person or an unethical person, you shouldn't look at that and support me anyway because my art is that good. So not only are you empowering them economically by giving them their money, but you're empowering them through the prestige that you're allowing them to have. And I would say that it also influences how other people perceive this artist because you continue to support someone who's unethical. For example, it made people... like My, my favorite example is Dan Schneider. Because we, me and Kyle watch a lot of Victorious. Um, and he's basically a child harasser. So his, he, he created shows like iCarly I and Victorious and Drake and Josh. Drake and Josh. So, which are iconic things. And when I found out about this director, I was just basically crushed. But because he was so popular and people kept consuming his art, a lot of people who worked under him felt like they couldn't speak up. They felt like they were voiceless because we were accidentally Basically, giving more power for him to step on others and silence them. Yeah, if you ta- if you remember, um, Dan Schneider has a huge foot fetish apparently, and the episode that we were watching from Victorious had this whole B plot about having really soft feet and people were just touching and like being distracted because of how soft their feet were. Yeah, <laughs> like, like there's, there's really so there's so much footage of feet in these shows now that you analyze it. So. Like, as a side project, watch these shows again and notice all the weird, like, harassment things that take place on the show. 
that they try to pass off as comedy. And then you'll realize how messed up this director was and how weird it was that we never pointed it out or realized it. Okay, just to be clear, we're not kink-shaming. If you have a foot thing, that's fine. That's fine. That's it's just fine. like, don't have a foot thing for teenagers or minors, you know? Yeah. I mean, they were not minors when they were in the show. A lot of them were over 18. But they were presented like 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. They're acting like children. Again, that's also another debatable issue, right? Yeah. But but it's it's still weird. We still feel like Ugh, we shouldn't we shouldn't be allowing that to happen. Okay, we kind of got distracted there, but I just have a lot of feelings about Dan Schneider All in right. bad ways. Okay, finally, let's talk about how it limits the production of art under this under government's model. We can argue that there's no more incentive to make art, and it's harder to quote unquote track art and artists. So under the first one. Um, there's no more incentive to make art. The reason why people make art is, admittedly, not solely because of selfless reasons. There's always probably a personal reason why a person makes the art. So if you deny that person the ability to have that compensation, there's no incentive to make that art, right? So my, one of my favorite examples here is the spoliarium, because apparently people keep saying, Oh, like this is such a great piece of art because the artist Juan Luna wanted to show the the tragedy of the Filipinos during this time. But what they forget a lot is that Juan Luna didn't wake up suddenly one day and say, "I wanna show the world what's happening to Filipinos," even though that might be a little part of why he wanted to make that that piece. It was mostly because it it was an entry to an art competition. Like he wanted the prestige. So there are so many things that could contribute to our society that otherwise wouldn't have been created if we deny those um monetary or material incentives to create the art. Yeah, so we would argue here that it's important that you get the artist's name out there or give them their spotlight because it incentivizes them to make more art or even create their first pieces to begin with. Because... It's hard to be an artist now. You know the the whole stereotype of the starving artist? I don't think it should be glorified because it's not true. People don't deliberately want to be starving artists. But the reason why they end up doing that or becoming like that is because we don't give them enough credit. We don't look at the artist's lives or actually try to incorporate them in how we appreciate art. And additionally, if you, for example, if you think about hip-hop during the 80s, right? When a lot of these rap groups were talking about political things that only black communities could experience, like police brutality. Imagine if those people were not rewarded and they no longer had the funds to continue making their art. We wouldn't have been able to like learn about all these different viewpoints. We wouldn't have been able to be as sympathetic towards their plights and their struggles. But second... Um, Nino will talk about this, that it's harder to track art and artists under government model. Yeah, so if you don't know who created particular pieces of art, it's hard for the audience, for example, to delve into more art that's similar, for example. Because I would argue that people get introduced to their favorite art pieces, not because they just stumble upon it, but because they were introduced to something of that artist and then they look at his entire collection as a package. Or they look at it, uh, as a collection but you're not able to do that if you actively remove the role of the artist or not look at the artist at all in how you appreciate art so it helps you track artworks 
because you manage to see it all in bulk and categorize them based on particular styles of artists, particular intentions of artists, their their feelings, um, their emotions at the time, their intentions. So I would say that it does contribute to how we appreciate art because it streamlines how we consume it. It makes it easier for us to find similar art pieces that we might enjoy. It also helps us understand art pieces more because I, I would say it's like pragmatically hard to categorize styles or identify people like Monet who was known for his pointillism if we didn't actively associate those art pieces with the artists that made them. Yeah, so yesterday when we were talking about Van Gogh, there were projections on the walls talking about his travels and how the places that he went to influenced this art. And when he went to France, for example, like you could literally see how the colors of his um, art brightened up and, and things like that. So at that point, I was like, this person is part of a bigger movement and it allowed me to think about other people that might have influenced him. So this is what introduced me to Monticelli, for example. And then I sort of tracked the evolution of these paintings from Monticelli to Van Gogh and then Monet, people like Renoir as well. These kinds of things. That was so nerdy. I love it. See, so like you can learn a lot based on how you view the artist as well. So we would argue and opt that it's an active disservice to the art community and to yourself if you actively leave out the artist in the equation. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that's it. That's gov and op. Um, if you have any more ideas of extensions, feel free to message us about it. Because admittedly, this is just like an opening half case. If this was a BP round, then we'd say that there needs to be like an exploration of new angles. There could be an exploration of other themes that are involved, for example. And we think that that, that could probably be something you raise and let us know about. So that's it for this particular episode. Um, we hope you are enjoying the art high. If you haven't, we'd recommend that you explore art for yourself. You don't need to go to the Van Gogh exhibit to appreciate it. It's I only just, for certain people. It's actually. only for certain people. So this is like spoiler-free review now of the exhibit. I liked it because I had like my personal reasons for going. But if you're not the type that would, I don't know, nerd out or really sit down and appreciate a presentation that lasts for 45 minutes, then you're probably going to find it kind of boring. Yeah. If you are, though, if you are, here's a pro tip. During the, you can stay <laughs> for like more than 45 minutes. You can sit through the thing twice or more than twice, a little bit more than twice. So the first time you watch it, there might be so many different people who are just walking around taking videos of stuff or taking selfies. And first of all, it's really hard to appreciate the exhibit itself. Second, it's also hard to get selfies for yourself. Yeah. Like, you're thinking about, like, how do you strategize getting people to move away from a particular spot so you can get a good shot? But by the time that you have the second the, the second showing, you could appreciate it more because there are less people. Yeah, so I hope that there are enough people who listen to this to the point that they get more meaning out of the exhibit if ever they try to go, but not reach so many people that everyone will just like like do the same strategy that I just recommended. Okay, okay. I think you're overestimating how many people listen to this podcast. I don't think they're gonna flock in all at once. But if you do though that would be really, really flattering for us. Okay, that's it. Um so thanks for listening to this episode of Debatable. Excuses for just randomly introducing art, even though I don't know, I feel like it's a bit of a deviation from the themes we've been discussing. Because art motions 
like in particular, don't do not come up that often compared to traditional themes. But we think that a lot of the concepts you learn here anyway, you can introduce in other debates, not necessarily just about art. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And that's it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ding, 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 ding.